Good morning. It's good to see you and to be with you. Oh, it's nice to sing with you. Um, thank you, Matt, Lindsay, and team for leading us this morning. I love that in this community we have stumbled into the tradition of observing Eastertide as a season, not just a single day of celebration. Uh, I don't know if you caught that at the beginning, the opening prayer, but this is known as Laughter Sunday. And, uh, or Holy Humor Sunday or Bright Sunday. Apparently this is a tradition that was begun by early Greek Christians and this is a, a custom that was developed in the early days of Christian practice as a tradition devoted to keeping the party going. So Easter, not just a season or not just a day, but a season. I remember a few day, uh, years ago being in Gastown uh, with my friend Mike DeBoer and a few others. Is Mike in the house this morning? You here? No, not so much. That's okay. Um, and I think it was a birthday party. It was getting late, but the celebrations apparently weren't over yet. So we were heading off to uh, another spot in Gastown. And Mike leaned over and said to me, if I can find a way to extend an evening, I will extend that evening. And I need people like that in my life, even as a new dad. or not so new anymore, but two years in, two and a half years in, I need people from time to time who know how to laugh, to celebrate, to throw parties and to keep the party going, parties that are life-affirming and full of joy. I think it was Anne Lamott who called uh, laughter carbonated holiness, kind of like that. And that's especially true when laughter is a direct response to this astonishing news that Jesus is alive, that death does not have the final word, that death isn't the end. What greater cause could there be for boisterous merriment? So we want to be people who keep the party going. We want to be people who keep noticing and naming newness, who keep calling each other into resurrection life, who rejoice with those who rejoice, and when the occasion calls for it, to weep with those who weep, to hold space for tragedies like the one that happened a couple of days ago involving this hockey team from Humboldt. Um, I, if you haven't heard about it, 15 people were killed when a team bus collided with a semi-trailer. And I don't know if this has touched anyone within our community, but I know we've got folks from Saskatchewan, from Alberta, where a lot of these players and families are from. And so even in Eastertide joy, it's important that we remember to grieve. It's okay to hold space for both. So this morning, in this season of Eastertide, as we're holding space for all of these things, we're heading back into the Sermon on the Mount and specifically into the Beatitudes, this opening section of Jesus' teaching. Uh, and as we reapproach these pronouncements of blessing, it's good to be reminded about how we ought to approach them. Since the beginning of this series, we've been saying a fair amount of what they're not. Things like they are not really timeless truths, they're not good advice, they're not entrance requirements to the kingdom of God, they're not seven steps to get God's blessing. In other words, we miss Jesus in his own teaching if we read the Beatitudes as hard and fast conditional if-then statements, as though the first part is a command to do something, to be humble, to mourn, to be meek, to hunger and thirst, and the second part is your reward. If you are poor in spirit, you will get the kingdom of heaven. If you are merciful, you will get mercy, and so on. But we also misread the Beatitudes if we fail to understand this that inherent in God's blessing is an appeal to live in a certain way and that this will result in thriving health and wholeness, also known as shalom. We try to put it really simply. 
The Beatitudes are not conditional statements where God's blessing is earned through good behavior. Rather, they are, as someone put it, grace-based wisdom invitations to human flourishing in God's coming kingdom. Grace-based wisdom invitations to God's flourish or to human flourishing in God's coming kingdom. So Jesus comes to us not with advice and requirement. He comes to us with announcement and invitation. It's a huge difference. May not seem like a big thing, but it's huge, and it's crucial to understand this, especially when it comes to the sixth beatitude, which we'll be looking at this morning. And so on this same note, Eugene Peterson has this great quote, which I kind of feel ready to copy down and put in the front of my Bible. If anyone wants to join me in that, you're welcome to. I think to be read every time we open it. He says this, Scripture does not present us with a moral code and tell us, live up to this, nor does it set out a system of doctrine and say, think like this and you will live well. Rather, the biblical way is to tell a story. And in the telling, invite, live into this. This is what it looks like to be human in the God-made and God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. That's good. And these words apply beautifully to all of Scripture, but especially to the Beatitudes, including this one. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is a grace-based wisdom invitation into a new way of being human. So essentially the question that I want to hold out for us this morning is what might it mean to live into this particular beatitude? What might it mean to live into this beatitude? Let's ask for God's help as we do this. God, we thank you as we have sung together, you are welcome here. And we are grateful also that you welcome us with open arms and that in many ways your welcome precedes our welcome of you. Thank you that you are always taking the initiative and that even when it comes to this beatitude, um, that we don't have to conjure up um, this blessing, that you freely offer it, that you desire flourishing, that you desire for your people to be pure in heart and you want us to see you. So I pray that you would tune our hearts, continue to tune our hearts, God, to sing your grace, even as we open up the scriptures this morning. Give us open ears, open eyes, open minds and hearts to receive what you have for us today. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So I invite you to, uh, if you have your own Bible, take it, or the chair Bible. And if you haven't already, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Actually, just pick any gospel. It'll sort itself up in time, I'm sure. Right? I don't want to play favorites here. Bless you, Dice. Thank you for reading the scriptures this morning. Matthew chapter 5, even when we're dealing with a single beatitude, it's good to hear them in context. So I want to read from the beginning of chapter 5 up until verse 8. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. There are various uh, translations of this beatitude. 
Uh, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will or they shall see God is, is a very common one. NIV, which we've been reading, and our SV and the English Standard Version all use that. It's another one. Happy are people who have pure hearts because they will see God. So the translators are really focusing on the word blessed and how that doesn't necessarily carry the same kind of emphasis as it did back in the day. So happy is one way to look at that. Another one, New Living Translation says, God blesses those who are heart, whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. So emphasizing the source of blessing, that's a good interpretive move as well. Another one, Peterson's translation, the message. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. So a little bit more interpretive uh, gusto with that one, maybe helpful. And... Uh, this one, clear eyes, full hearts can't lose. This is a, okay, see who the fans are. This is a lesser known translation, FNL, stands for Friday Night Lights. Um, maybe a bit of a stretch, but I'm actually not so sure. Um, whatever else Jesus might be on about in this beatitude, there's a clear link between the heart and sight, between interiority and vision. And presumably, seeing God is a winning uh, scenario. So frankly, I'm not ready to dismiss the FNL just yet. One thing that's hard not to notice about this sixth beatitude is that in contrast to the other ones we've just looked at, this is an invitation to attend to the interior life. Pure in heart, for they will see God. The fourth beatitude, two ago, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or right relatedness in every sphere of life, as well as the fifth beatitude, blessed are the merciful, are both about the outward direction, right? So they're about engaging the exterior world with all its social and political realities, seeking to be agents of justice and mercy and compassion. So we all know that the political world can be a hostile place for people who work for justice in a merciful and gracious way. Harsh things are said and done, rejected, rejection and negativity are often the norm. So how do we respond when unfair or untrue things are said about us? Do we withdraw and retreat or we come out firing with both barrels? Are our, flight, our fight or flight the only two options available to us? We've said that this sermon contains the best summary of the gospel and that the Beatitudes are perhaps the best teachings within that summary. So I can't help wondering if Jesus' brilliance here in placing this interior life Beatitude after two exterior life ones and before two more exterior life Beatitudes is in part to invite us to consider the condition of how our hearts affect outward action. So it's almost like this, this beatitude is like a sandwich, an interior beatitude sandwich in between two exterior ones. What if the sixth beatitude is a journey back into the soul for spring cleaning before we step out to make peace and to perhaps be the target? We back? We're still there? Good. Um, so... Spring cleaning, this idea, the word pure in Greek is katharos, which is where we get our English words for catheter. And catharsis, you're welcome. Um, it's the word for clean, unmixed, unalloyed, unadulterated, like pure gold or pure maple syrup. Jesus is essentially saying that when the heart is right, seeing will be right. 
Heart and sight are tied together. So let's talk about sight first. The pure in heart will see God. Really? In what sense? I don't really know for sure. I don't think anyone does. This beatitude is not only an invitation into interiority, it's an invitation into mystery. Is Jesus speaking literally? Is he speaking metaphorically? Is he talking about seeing with the eyes of faith, like the song we've just sung together, open the eyes of my heart, I want to see you? Is that what Jesus is on about? Or is Jesus promising that the pure in heart will somehow recognize that God exists, that God is good, that God is with them and for them, that God has come to us in Christ and lives with them and in them by the Holy Spirit? In other words, is Jesus talking about a sort of mental, emotional cognition? Or is he saying that the pure in heart will see God like they see everything else in three-dimensional reality? That they will see God like they see people and trees and birds and buildings? If that's what he means, then we need to ask, what, what do they see? Is there a thing to be seen? Now, some of you might be thinking... I thought the Bible taught that if you see God, you're basically dead. Is there anything to that? Let's look at a few scriptures. 1 Timothy 1.17, Paul writes to Timothy and speaks of God as eternal, immortal, and invisible. In the last chapter of that same letter, Paul speaks of God who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. Seems pretty clear. So there's that. But then there are these mysterious stories throughout the biblical narrative that suggest exceptions to the rule. Think of Jacob, that time in Genesis 32 where he wrestles with a man through the night. And as the story unfolds, Jacob comes to the understanding that he'd actually been wrestling with God. And then the text says, so Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face. Peniel meaning face of God. I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Jacob, exception to the rule. Think of Moses, the time his own sister and brother confronted him, but God cleared his name. God then says to Moses' siblings in the book of Numbers, listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face, clearly, not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Interesting. Face to face, sees the form of God. Is there a form to see? Is this metaphorical language yet again? Can we truly see God and live, or is God essentially like Jack Nicholson? Is it possible for human beings to handle whatever is seeable of God. Again, think of Moses who boldly prayed, show me your glory, Lord. And how does God respond? God responds by saying, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, but you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Moses then tells, or sorry, God tells Moses to hide in the cliff of a rock and says, I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. 
Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So all these texts, no human may see me and live, and yet Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see. Is Jesus saying then that Moses was not pure in heart? Is Jesus saying that the no human may see me and live means impure human, but pure human can see and live? And is this the point of what's revealed to the Apostle John in the book of Revelation? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. So could it be that there's something about the new creation that now enables them to look at the full glory of God and live? So is it, is it only when the new heaven and the new earth arrive that we will finally be pure enough to see God? John's gospel, you still with me? John's gospel clarifies a few things for us. He begins his story of Jesus by saying, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. And then Jesus says things like, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. Then one of Jesus' disciples, Philip, says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Yeah, I guess. Jesus responds, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Daryl Johnson put it well when he said, the unseen has become seeable in Jesus. And so Paul in Colossians can say that Christ is the visible expression of the invisible God. And in his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge, God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Now, some might be thinking that's great for those who lived in the first century Palestine and actually saw Jesus in human form, but what about us 21st century Vancouverites? We're at a little bit of a disadvantage. Where is the face of Jesus now? Interestingly enough, I think the gospel writers can help us with that question as well. One thing that's important to remember is that Jesus' first disciples, even though they saw him in person, didn't fully get Jesus. In many ways, they were mystified right to the end, at least about some things. So who's to say, if we lived at that time, that our level of perception would be any different? That's important to remember. The earliest of Jesus' followers were always after a clearer vision of who he was. And there was this time that Jesus responded to that request or that impulse by taking a small child in his arms and saying, whoever welcomes me, uh, whoever welcomes, sorry, one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. What if Jesus is saying that one of the ways we see his face is in the face of a child who cries out for attention. Then there's another story where Jesus told, that Jesus told where he talks about being hungry and us feeding him, about being a stranger and we welcomed him, about being sick 
and we looked after him. And in that story, he has us respond, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did, for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. What if Jesus is saying that we see his face and therefore the face of God in the marginalized people of the world? This is the secret of the joy Mother Teresa found in her work in Calcutta, in the face of discarded infants and forgotten elders, Teresa saw the face of Christ. Could it be that this is what Jesus means by seeing God, especially for we who are alive now, that the pure in heart will recognize and respond to God in the mundane stuff of everyday life? If that's true, how do we cultivate that kind of vision? How do we engage the art of seeing? Alexandra Horowitz, in her book called On Looking, subtitle is 11 Walks with Expert Eyes. She sets out to walk around a city block with 11 different experts, and these experts range from an artist to a geologist to a dog. If you've ever taken a dog for a walk, you know what she's talking about there. In the hope of emerging with fresh eyes, and she starts this way. She says, right now, you are missing the vast majority of what is happening around you. You are missing the events unfolding in your body, in the distance, and right in front of you. By marshalling your attention to these words, you are ignoring an unthinkably large amount of information that continues to bombard all of your senses. The hum of the fluorescent lights, the ambient noise in a large room, the places your chair presses against your legs or back, your tongue touching the roof of your mouth, the tension you are holding in your shoulders or jaw, the map of the cool and warm places on your body, the constant hum of traffic or a distant lawnmower, the blurred view of your own shoulders and torso in your peripheral vision, the chirp of a bug or the whine of a kitchen appliance. Horowitz's process was first to walk alone and she just tried to make note of everything she saw. And then she joins her experts. And as soon as that happens, she's confronted by the awareness that despite her best attempts to be as Sherlockian as possible, she was missing pretty much everything. She comes to recognize what William James meant when he wrote, my experience is what I agree to attend to. Only those items which I notice shape my mind. My experience is what I agree to attend to. Horowitz once more in her own words, she said, I would find myself at once alarmed, delighted, and humbled at the limitations of my ordinary looking. My consolation is that this deficiency of mine is quite human. We see, but we do not see. We use our eyes, but our gaze is glancing, frivolously considering its object. We see the signs, but not their meanings. We are not blinded, but we have blinders. Humbled, indeed. I sometimes have a bit of an inflated view of my own ability to perceive and notice. I don't know if you're like me. All it takes is being in a close relationship for a while to have that reality, reality checked, and there's just no way we can see everything. 
There are, of course, many reasons for this seeing but not seeing. Often they're tied to circumstance and specific to the situation. So if you're walking along Main Street and an ambulance goes by, that will pretty much instantly divert your attention. We're surprised, we're caught off guard by many things, but whatever the reason her point remains true, our experience is what we agree to attend to. We are not blinded, but we all have blinders. We need help to cultivate the art of seeing. And whatever else Jesus is saying in this beatitude, what seems clear, as as we said at the beginning, that he is linking sight with matters of the heart, that when the heart is right, our seeing will be right. He's saying that whatever there is to see of God, whether in Christ as we come to know him in the Gospels, or in our children, or in the world's marginalized, or in the everyday stuff of life, we won't see it unless the windows are clean. So let's talk about the heart. I don't know what comes to mind when you think of the heart. The word is a big part of the mystery, I think, that's contained in this beatitude. And yet I'm helped somewhat by Cynthia Bourgeau and her perspective. She writes that the heart is first and foremost an organ of spiritual perception. Its primary function is to look beyond the obvious, the boundaried surface of things, and see into a deeper reality which plays lightly upon the surface of this life without being caught there. A world where meaning, insight, and clarity come together in a whole different way. St. Paul talked about this other kind of perceptivity with the term faith. Faith as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But the word faith is often misunderstood by the linear mind. What it really designates is not a leaping into the dark as so often misconstrued, but a subtle seeing in the dark a kind of spiritual night vision that allows one to see with inner certainty that the elusive golden thread glimpsed from within actually does lead somewhere. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the clear at center. This is about interiority. It's about what I agree to attend to in my inner person. It's about keeping the windows of the soul clean. Jesus seems to be announcing blessing on those who are centered on God. So one question that might occur to some of us is, is it worth the effort? Psalm 73 is one of my favorite psalms. It's one of my favorites because it's a portrait of someone who is on the brink of choosing a story. It's the prayer of someone who has cultivated the art of seeing, but is also willing to ask honest questions about his own motivations and desires. Verse 1, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Hmm. What's kind of fascinating to notice is that this beatitude is perhaps not as new a teaching as we might think. God has already been pouring out his blessing on the pure in heart for thousands of years. The psalmist had already experienced it as his ultimate reality. The goodness of God is his starting point. Two and three. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So his assuredness about the rock-solid foundation of God's goodness is short-lived, to say the least. It lasts for one verse, and it's a really short verse. Then he launches into a confession of how he nearly lost it. Starting at verse 4, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. 
Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff, speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the most high know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Now, a brief word about the wicked in the Psalms. We often hear the word wicked and immediately associate the worst person you could possibly think of. But more accurately, it refers to a heart orientation. It speaks of being on a trajectory that is either increasingly distant, that is increasingly distant from God. So the wicked person in the Psalms or in the whole of Hebrew wisdom is intentionally moving away from a God-centered existence and toward an autonomous one. Point being, when we read the Psalms and see righteous and wicked, don't think in clear-cut categories like, oh, Christians are obviously the righteous and non-Christians are the wicked. We are all prone to waywardness and rebelliousness. So if I were to paraphrase these verses, I think it might go something like, okay, God, I'm looking around here, and from what I can see, these people who are running their own lives seem to be just doing quite well at it. What's holding me back from joining them? Then he gets even more vulnerable. Verse 13, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. What's he saying? Or rather, praying. Remember, this is God-directed speech. He's telling God, you know what? Pure-heartedness doesn't seem to be worth it after all. Innocence and right living isn't all it's cracked up to be. It's bringing me nothing but heartache and suffering. So one way to look at this psalm is as an exploration of two different ways of spending our lives. We'll, we'll come to back to the psalm in a moment, but I want to just zoom out for a sec and make this a bit more, I don't know, relatable, tangible, by comparing the lives of two famous women. Mother Teresa, who we already mentioned, was a dynamo of energy. She may have looked frail and meek, but just ask anyone who ever stood in her way. She was a human bulldozer dedicated to God and to the poor, and everyone considered her a saint. Why? Because she was able to channel her life's energy in a creative, life-giving way. Soren Kierkegaard wants to find a saint as someone who can will the one thing. And Mother Teresa did just that. Total dedication to God and to the poor was her signature, her spirituality, and made her what she was. Compare Janis Joplin, rock star who died from an overdose of life at age 27. Few would consider her a very spiritual woman. People think of her as the opposite of Mother Teresa, full of life's energy, but not very spiritual. Yet Joplin was not so different from Mother Teresa in raw makeup and character. And yet, un unlike Mother Teresa, Janice Joplin could not will the one thing. Her great energy went out in all different directions and eventually created an excess and a tiredness that led to an early death. But those activities, a total giving over to creativity, performance, drugs, booze, sex, coupled with neglect of normal rest, were her spirituality. It was how she channeled her life's energy. And in her case, the end result was not a healthy integration, but dissipation. She simply lost the things that glue a person together and broke apart under too much pressure. Ron Rollheiser says this, most of us are quite like Mother Teresa 
and that we want to will God and the poor. We do will them. The problem is, we will everything else as well. Thus, we want to be a saint, but we also want to feel every sensation experienced by sinners. We want to be innocent and pure, but we also want to be experienced and taste all of life. We want to serve the poor and have a simple lifestyle, but we also want all the comforts of the rich. We want to have the depth afforded by solitude, but we also do not want to miss anything. We want to pray, but we also want to watch television, read, talk to friends, and go out. Small wonder, life is often a trying enterprise, and we are often tired and pathologically overextended. Every choice is a renunciation. Indeed, every choice is a thousand renunciations. She's just emphasizing my point. He or she. To choose one thing is to turn one's back on many others. To marry one person is not to marry all the others. To have a baby means to give up certain things. And to pray may mean missing television. No wonder we struggle so much with commitment. Verse 15. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Most scholars agree that the psalmist here is referring to the previous two verses where he said, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In other words, if I'd said that out loud, I would have been turning back on your family. But then I entered your sanctuary and the whole picture came into focus. When I saw you as you are, I understood how insubstantial a self-oriented life can be. How a life built on pride and violence and cynicism and self-importance can come tumbling down just like that. One of the things that makes this so hard is that our experience doesn't always line up with reality. It can easily look like people who have it all together really do have it all together, even though we know better. Skipping ahead to verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, Listen to that interiority language. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. One paraphrase might be, when the windows of my soul were filthy and I wasn't seeing clearly, I became something less than human. Verse 23, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What a beautiful picture of purity of heart. Someone choosing what they will agree to attend to. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Now that's not Gnosticism. It's not anti-materialism. It's seeking kingdom first so all the other things can be added. It's willing the one thing. Madeline Langle's book, A Wind in the Door, has Mr. Murray, this character, say, with my intellect, I see cause for nothing but pessimism and even despair, but I can't settle for what my intellect tells me. That's not all of it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are those who have a clean window in their soul, for they will perceive God when and where others don't. This beatitude 
is an invitation to interiority. And as we said earlier, I don't think it's an accident that it's sandwiched between two on either side that have to do with exteriority, about extending righteousness or seeking righteousness, hungering and thirsting for it, about being merciful. And then on the other side, as we'll look at next week, what it means to be peacemakers and bearing the weight of persecution. So just a word for those of you who consider yourselves activists, who wear that title or the bit of a badge, like, we need you. We need you. As Lance mentioned at our annual community meeting about a month ago, we're in a season of trying to listen for why we're in this neighborhood. We want to grow this church not just numerically, but for social impact. We want Vancouver, and specifically the downtown east side, to have been better off because our church exists. We need your passion. We need your vision. We need your creativity. We need your deep sense of justice. But know also that as you help us engage our city in an effort to bring positive social change, we need your hearts to be attuned to the Spirit of God. Felina Hewart's said, through activism, we confront toxicity in our world. Through contemplation, we confront it in ourselves. This beatitude is an invitation to soul work, which is hard work. We want to will God and ourselves, but it doesn't work that way. So a few invitations and questions for all of us. And we're all meant to be people of action, by the way. A few questions about how we might live into this beatitude. First is around the the issue of desire. We sang this earlier, and we sang it a bunch of times. I want to see you. Do you, do we, do I want to see God? And I ask this without any sort of preconceived or implying any kind of judgment. It's just an invitation to consider, where am I in my desire And these intentions, to remember that these intentions can be shaped by God's spirit who very much wants us to be a people who are pure in heart, who very much wants us to see him. This is a God who wants to be seen. Do you want to see God? Do we? Do I? Another question. We may want to, uh, but there might be an awareness and a growing awareness as we listen to our lives of what's in the way. What sort of spring cleaning might God be wanting to bring to your house in this season? As we respond by coming to the table or by praying over here or by receiving prayer even personally, do you want to bring a prayer for your own house to be cleaned in this season? You can be specific, but you don't have to. Be specific in your own heart, but in terms of letting someone pray for you, you don't necessarily need to. Do you want to see God? Maybe. What's in the way? And then to pay attention to what helps you attend to God. What helps you notice? What helps you see? And encouragement to engage these practices over the late spring and summer months. To see Jesus in the Gospels. To spend time with children, perhaps. To be with those who tend to be on the margins, on the outside. God wants our hearts to be pure. God wants to do this work in us. Let me just say this also. You are not a burden to God. God delights to do this work. 
It's a work of grace, and this is who God is. So may we cooperate with God's gracious work in our lives. Let's be still for a brief moment, and I'll conclude with prayer, and we'll come to the table together and receive uh, God's life in us again. Self-revealing God. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. Thank you, God, that you have left with us your Holy Spirit who continues to bear witness to the character, the nature, the life of Christ in us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that continues to point us and direct us to you to convict our conscience, to clean the windows of our soul, to focus our vision, to sharpen our intent. Thank you, God, that you have left yourself with us, that we don't journey alone, even in this invitation to live with hearts that are pure in order to see you. We pray that you would, for those of us who aren't sure whether we want to see you, help us to see the goodness of seeing you, especially in this cultural moment where there is a lot that would challenge um, this vision that lot that would distract from seeing you clearly and understanding you clearly. We need to be a people, God, who, um, who see you well and who embody your character, your vision for life. We pray, God, that you would gift us with honesty when it comes to understanding and seeing what it is that gets in the way of our journey with you, of our seeing of you, of hearts that are clear and pure, and that we would be courageous enough to invite you to do your work in us. And God, I pray that you would lead us into life-giving practices, perhaps uh, resurrecting old practices that have worn thin or have gone stale or that we have become uh, fallen asleep to, things that once gave life and produced, um, yeah, holiness, goodness, shalom in our worlds, but perhaps have drifted lead us back into those, those places, into those practices. And also, God, if you want to reveal new things to us, we pray for also the wisdom, the creativity, the imagination, and the humility to accept um, your new direction for our lives. Thank you for this beatitude. Thank you that it is good news. Thank you that we're not alone in seeking to live into it. So we trust you to lead us. In the name of Christ, 
Amen.